Good morning. Uh, it's so great to be here with everyone. Like I said, Kai said, my name is Brady Cohn. Many of you guys know me. Many of you know me as Mary's boyfriend, now Mary's fiance. So she did say yes. I think that uh, Ty had a picture even. So I know I love that picture. Mary's probably embarrassed, but uh, it's okay. So I love that picture. Uh, so we're trying to figure out, you know, wedding plans and what marriage is going to look like and, uh, and how we're going to love each other. And I, I just want to tell this quick funny story. Mary got a picture of that last night. Uh, she uh, came over to my house and I was preparing for some guests to come. And so we're mad, you know, rush to wash all my dishes. And uh, she, it was revealed that not only did I have a sink full of dishes, I had an oven full of dirty dishes. Because my last guests, when they came last week, I didn't get the dishes washed, so I shoved them in my oven. And so, uh, and I hadn't used the oven since. And so she was like, I just don't understand how you can live this way. It's like, yeah, it's a good thing that the gospel is sufficient for many things. So, so yeah, so we are figuring that out, but super excited. Uh, so I've been given the task today of talking about sexuality. Our, our theme this year that Josh set out before us is living in light of eternity. So I'm going to be talking about what does sexuality look like living in light of eternity, in light of what Christ has done for us. So it's really hard to, they gave me a time limit of two hours. And so I don't know how I'm going to do that in just two hours time. But I hope you all had a big breakfast, drank lots of coffee. Uh, just joking. It's really about 35 minutes. And so this is such a big topic. There's no way I could say everything that needs to be said in 35 minutes. But I, my, my prayer is always that this starts the conversation of what does sexuality look like in light of eternity, in light of the gospel, in light of what... Christ has done for us. And this is a big topic is we live in a culture that is so confused. Uh, I, I want to start out with this uh, verse that was just on my heart this morning, really reflecting on where our culture is at when it comes to marriage and sexuality. First uh, Timothy 1 verse 5, it says, the aim of our instruction is to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so I don't think our, our, our culture would deny that we're all about love. We want to love one another. Everything is all about love. And therefore, two men can love one another. Two women can love one another. Uh, someone can get divorced so they can love someone else because we're all about love. But our culture has no idea what it means to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, a heart and a conscience and a faith that's been informed by God's word. Uh, we're missing the mark of what the kind of love that God calls us to. So my prayer is this morning that uh, I can shed some light on the kind of love that God calls us to and how he changes our hearts and he changes our consciences and he changes the way that we love. I'm going to start with sharing my story. Uh, some of you guys have heard it, so I apologize if you have to hear it again. And then within that, share just some nuggets of truth on the type of love and the type of marriage that God calls us to. So let me open us in prayer, and then uh, I will get started. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for these people that they get to be here and worship as the body of Christ. I, I, I thank you for the gospel that you've provided us with the good news uh, of salvation. I, I pray that this morning we um, experience that as a deeper level. I, I pray that through my story that uh, people can see your grace at a deeper level. I pray that you provide conviction where conviction is needed, and I pray that you help people experience your grace in places they've never experienced it before. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
So my story begins three decades ago, to date myself a little bit, I'm kind of getting old now. So three decades ago, growing up on a farm in Nebraska where I'm from, I always grew up kind of feeling like I'm different than the rest of the boys, feeling like there's something different about me. I had an older brother and a dad at home and a couple of sisters. And when it came to my brother and my dad, it always felt like there's something different about them. There's something different about them that makes them men that I don't have that's just different about me. But it wouldn't be until years later when I'd figure out what that difference was. In the meantime, I grew up going to church. We're a church-going family, so we did the the thing that all the good Christian people do in small town Nebraska, you go to church on Sunday mornings, you pray before your meals, you put on kind of a good image that you're this good Christian family. And so I grew up with that background, and I'm, I'm grateful that I grew up knowing that I'm a sinner who needed Jesus. I'm thankful for that background. But at about the age of 11, life started to get a little bit messy, really very messy. That's the age when my parents got divorced. And many of you guys come from those types of broken homes, dealt with those situations, so you know how difficult that can be. Well, my parents went through the whole legal process, through the whole divorce, and then finally, you know, they went to court after they got done fighting over each other's stuff, and they went to court, and it was finalized, and we thought, well, we can finally move on with our lives. But instead, my parents actually got back together 17 times, and so 17 times, my dad moved back in with us, and then every time, it didn't work out. And so for about three years, it was just mass instability in my family's life, where from month to month, we didn't know which parents we'd be living with, where we'd be living, if our parents would be together or not. So from the age of 11 to 14 was just a very difficult, painful time in my life and for my family. And that's a very formative time in any young person's life. Well, it's during that time that I started to notice some of the things that are different about me. You know, age 11, uh, you're going into junior high. That's just a difficult, confusing time for everyone. Uh, it's awkward and weird. And all my friends were starting to gain an attraction towards girls, starting to notice girls in ways they hadn't before. You know, all of a sudden, girls went from having cooties to being kind of cute. There's this transformation happening, and I wasn't feeling those things, but I was feeling some of those very same things for other guys. And I was really confused by that. I didn't know what to do with that. I had enough church background to know that homosexuality is a sin, but I'd always heard it preached from, if it was preached on at all, preached from a very uh, self-righteous, legalistic standpoint of that's the one ultimate sin. That is the one ultimate unforgivable sin. So just the fact that I was having these feelings filled me with shame and guilt. And as time went on, the feelings got stronger, and so did the shame and the guilt. My family during that time had given up on Christianity. When my parents got divorced, it's kind of like the, the Christian image of our family was ruined. So like, why even try any longer? So my family really walked away from Christianity and the church. But I kept going to youth group on Wednesday nights because I deep down really wanted to know who God was. And so I was going to youth group, and by the time I was 13, these feelings and attractions, desires were getting stronger and just consuming more of my life and more of my mind. So I thought, I've got to tell someone. I've got to get some help. Well, one night at youth group, uh, I decided, well, maybe I should tell a youth group leader or a pastor about what's going on. Maybe they have some answers for me. But that night at youth group, before I had the courage to do that, was a moment that forever will change my life. I'll never forget this moment sitting there as a confused, broken, hurting 13-year-old when the youth pastor from the pulpit made the comment, he said, I wish all homosexuals would die. 
And in that moment sitting there, I remember just being frozen, thinking, he's talking about me when he says that. He's talking about me. And so I went home that night, just really confused and hurting. And I went home, and I was home by myself, so I loaded a gun. I was going to take my own life, because I thought, if it's God's will for all homosexuals to die, like I heard a youth group, then I guess I will. Thankfully, by the grace of God, right before I pushed the trigger on the gun, I heard my mom walk in the front door. So I kind of came to my senses and, and put the gun away. So I obviously didn't end my life that night, but that was just the start of a downward spiral in my life. I, I didn't go back to youth group. I didn't go back to church. Uh, that was the moment I put up a wall around myself and said, I guess I can't let anyone in. I guess I can't let anyone see what's going on inside of me. I have to keep this a secret from everyone. That was also the moment where I gained this horrible distrust of Christians. And, and I thought that I want to know God, but Christians are hateful, hurtful, and they can never love me because of who I am. Well, it was soon after that uh, youth group incident that I discovered online pornography for the first time. And at that time in our culture, getting close to 20 years ago now, that was a pretty new thing of having that easy access to it. And now, obviously, it's just rampant everywhere. But that was an instant addiction in my life. And for me, online pornography was, felt like more than a sexual addiction because I so desperately just wanted a place where I could belong, where I could be understood, where there's people who had the same feelings as me and understood me. And I found that in this online world of darkness. It felt like that's the only place where I could go, where I can belong. Well, it was shortly after that, just like any addiction does, it grows and goes from, from uh, thoughts and desires and lust to, to action. And I started to act out on some of these desires. And, uh, and so I, I started to experiment with, with encounters with other men and same-sex relationships. And uh, part of me thought that this is wrong. I don't really want to do this. But I remember some days the pull being so strong. I remember waking up in the mornings thinking, I can't get through the rest of my day without fulfilling these desires. And so I'd find a way to do that. And even at the age of 14, 15 years old, 20 years ago in small town Nebraska, I could get online any night of the week and find sexual encounters and hookups, even older men willing to pay me for it. And part of that, that piece of my life, I, I felt so valueless and so worthless. That I thought, if someone's willing to pay me for this, then I guess I have value to someone. And so that's where I was. On the inside, I was hurting, but I was just trying to live the life, the only life I knew how of, of uh, fulfilling these desires somehow because I felt like I have no other choice in this. Like, this just feels like who I am. I was, so I started wrestling with identity questions. And through the rest of high school, I was questioning, who am I and what does this mean for my life? We're living in a society where this was being talked about a lot more. And in our society, it was telling us that if you're attracted to the same gender, you just need to accept the identity of gay and that's who you are. And you, you need to do that to be happy. That's the only way you can live a fulfilled life. And so that, that's the only thing I was hearing about it. And so therefore I thought, well, that must be true. That must be what I have to do. And so by the time I graduated from high school, um, I'd really accepted the fact that I was just a gay man and this is who I have to be. This is, it felt like this is the way I was born and this is who I am. But I wasn't completely happy with that. It felt like throughout high school, my, my spiritual life, my emotional life was kind of like a pendulum swinging back and forth. And on one hand, on one side of the pendulum, uh, 
I w- it would, I'd say, well, I want to love God and I want God to love me, but God can't love me the way that I am. I have to fix myself. I have to change this. I have to walk away from this. I, I can't be like this for God to love me. So say, I'm going to change myself. I'm not going to do this any longer. So I'd walk away from the pornography, from the LGBT community, from you know, online encounters, from relationships. I'd walk away from all that so that God could love me. And so I'd walk away from that. And that usually on average last about 42 to 46 minutes. And then I'd, just like any addiction goes, you, you succumb to it again and then you just give up. And the pendulum would swing in the other direction and say, well, I guess I, I can't fix myself. I can't change myself. This is just who I am. Therefore, I guess God can't love me like this. And I was wrestling with these spiritual questions of, well, it feels like I'm just born this way. So how could a loving God create me in a way that's going to condemn me to hell? And the answers to that question were either our God is not a loving God or there's no God at all. That's really where I was at when I graduated from high school and went on to college, just trying to live the best life I knew, uh, given the circumstances I was in, and trying to find some fulfillment in this area. But it seemed like the deeper I got into the LGBT community and that lifestyle— just, I, I just had this nagging feeling in me that there's something wrong with this. I remember walking away from every sexual encounter, from every relationship, thinking, this isn't doing for me what it's supposed to do for me. This isn't make me feel loved the way it's supposed to make me feel loved. But it felt like this is who I am and I have no other choice. So I kept on living that life. Well, I went on to college, to a small college in Nebraska called Shadron State. And the moment I pulled up to campus for the first time to unload my stuff and move in the dorm room, there's a group of guys standing there who offered help me unload my things. And so we unloaded my car and, and I got moved in and uh, these upperclassmen guys invited me to a ministry on campus that met on Wednesday nights. And so I went, I wasn't walking with God at all. I was very angry and bitter towards God. Uh, but I went because I still kind of had this Christian image thing going on. I wanted people to think I was a good Christian person, and I thought maybe it could be a good place to make some friends. So I went, and it was good. There's a, a band and a speaker who I'm sure shared the gospel, and it was good, but I was so hard-hearted and bitter that I'd show up there every Wednesday night for years, and nothing that I heard from the pulpit got through my hard-heartedness. I, I thought that God's grace doesn't apply to me. God's grace doesn't apply to my sin. I'm too far gone for God to love me. So what I heard from the pulpit didn't change my life, but what did change my life were some of the friendships that were built there. Some of these upperclassmen guys who started to really invest in my life. They started to pursue me. They started to include me into their community. They started to give me a place where I could belong and where I could be known. And I so desperately longed for that. And these guys, they would ask me spiritual questions and I had enough church background to give them the answers I thought that, you know, they wanted to hear. They knew that something was amiss in my life, but they still loved me anyway. They still pursued me. They still included me in their community. And I hadn't realized over two years how God was using them to soften my heart. He was using them to give me uh, a much better picture of Christianity than I'd ever experienced. I, I got the picture of Christianity of people who truly love Jesus and they love people and they're so open and real about their lives and about their sin and their struggles, but they weren't just honest about their sin, but they repented of their sin. And I could see Jesus changing them from the inside out. And that started to give me a picture of who Christ is. Well, after the first two years of college, 
life started to get uh, more messier when I just felt like my sin is failing me. Like, the more I pursue this lifestyle, the, the worse it is. And it is not, like I said, it's not making me feel loved the way that it's making me feel loved. And all sin fails us eventually, sometimes just sooner than later. Well, so I felt like my whole life is falling apart and I have nothing left in this life. And I had these, this group of friends, though, these, these Christians who are loving me and they love me unconditionally, it seemed like. They're doing radical things to love me. One time, Brandon changed the starter of my car in the middle of the night in the dorm parking lot so I could get home the next day. They were doing these radical things to love me. But I'd done a really good job of hiding this aspect of my life from them. At this time, the LGBT community was not nearly as out and proud and public as they are today. So I'd done a really good job of hiding that life from these Christian friends. And I, dec- I come to a place that summer where I thought that my only option is I just want to end this life. I want to be done with this. I can't do this any longer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm living the only life I know how, and it is failing me, and it's not doing for me what it was supposed to do for me. And so I decided that I really wanted to just end my life and get it over with. And I had this group of Christian friends who loved me really well, but I thought, they don't actually love me. They love the person that they think I am. I thought if they actually knew what was going on in my life, they knew this life I was living, if they knew about my past, my struggles, and all this junk and all this sin in my life, there's no way that they would love me. And so I decided to tell one of my friends, his name was Lex, uh, about all this other life I was living. And it was so hard for me to tell him that I, I wrote him a letter and I handed him the letter. And we were in my stepdad's house and I actually had a gun loaded in my room. And I said, if he rejects me, I'm just going to, going in my life. That's going to be it. And it was really more this affirmation of like proving that a Christian would not love me if they knew about the sin in my life. And so I knew that Lux would reject me. Then there'd be affirmation that it's like, yeah, like Christians, they're all fake. They don't actually love me uh, like, like, like they say they do. Well, I'm still standing here today. So Lux didn't reject me. Instead, he came across the room. He gave me this big hug. He said, hey, man, I love you. And I don't know what this is going to look like, but we're going to get through this together. Your sin is no better or worse than my sin. And I love you. And we're going to fight this together. And everything is going to be okay. That was just a life-changing moment that just blew my mind that Lux could love me so well. And so for the next three days, I could not get that out of my mind, that, that how well Lux had loved me. And like I said, Jesus had been using these guys to show me who he was and show me what, what Christianity looked like and how much he loves us. So for the next three days, what I couldn't get out of my mind was that there can't be Lux who loves me. That has to be the Jesus I see in him who loves me. And so for the first time, I started to become convinced that I think that Jesus still loves me. I think that despite everything I've done and everything going on in my life. I think Jesus still does love me. And my mind was just blown by that. And it felt like I had nothing left in my life except suddenly the love and the grace of Jesus. But that was enough. And so after three days on June 21st, 2006, I fell to my knees in repentance towards Christ. And I had one of these tear-filled, snot-covered, weeping moments at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And that was the moment I surrendered my life to him. And you see, I'd always called myself a Christian and I'd spent hours upon hours praying for God to take the struggle away, to, to make me different, to make me no longer attracted to, to men and you know, to take the struggle away. I wanted to be attracted to women. I wanted to have a, a, you know, a house and a family and a wife and all these things. 
But what I'd realized in that moment was that my faith had been nothing more than my demands on God. It'd been me telling God, all right, God, I want to follow you, but I demand these things. Here are my terms and conditions. I want to have a wife and a family, and, and I don't want to have to tell anyone, and uh, these are my terms and conditions. And that's no faith at all. But the, for the first time, I was at a place of surrender where I said, Lord, I don't care what it takes. I don't care who I have to tell. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what it costs me. I trust that your grace is enough for my life and I want to follow you. And that is the true gospel that God calls us to surrender to, is following him no matter the cost because his love and grace is enough. Well, my life instantly started to change. I, I told a few more guys about my, my struggle and, and my, my lifestyle I was living, my identity, and they loved me just as well. And the, these Christian guys started to read scripture with me and, and pour into my life. And they, they didn't know anyone else who struggled with this. They had no idea how to deal with this, but they knew that the gospel was sufficient. And so they were determined to, to preach the gospel into my life and to love me on a daily basis. But I was still really wrestling because now I know Christ is my savior. I felt like so different, like I can do this, me and Jesus can do this. Uh, but my struggle hasn't gone away. It's like, I'm still attracted to men. And so uh, what does that mean for my life? And so one of the things that I, I, I was asking, well, it's like, now can things be different? Now that I know Christ, uh, can I still just be gay? And like, now it's going to be okay because God loves me and I can find just a monogamous relationship. And, and can that be okay? But I started to search through God's scriptures and uh, I could not find any justification to continue to live like that life. And I kept coming across scriptures like uh, in First Peter where it says, be holy as I am holy. And I knew that if I'm going to be surrendered to God's word, if my life and my eternity rest on God's word, then I need to surrender to all of God's word, even when it doesn't make sense, even when uh, I, I, I don't know how this is going to look, even when I don't know how I'm going to do this, I need to surrender to 100% of God's word because God's word is what should mold and shape our life. And that was scary because I had no idea what that was going to look like. I felt like, this is just who I am. How can I possibly be anything different? But I was determined to trust in God's word because his grace was enough. Well, I want to read with you, with you guys a piece of scripture that uh, changed my life that summer. It's from 1 Corinthians 6. And there's three verses. These first two verses, I feel like I heard over and over again growing up. It's 1 Corinthians 6, verses uh, 9 and 10. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's very serious scripture is all sins should be taken very seriously. I always heard those two verses point out towards the homosexual community of this kind of self-righteous, see, look at them. They're worse than the rest of us. They're not inheriting the kingdom of God. Even though really when you read through that list of sins, it really covers most of us on a daily basis. But my life changed that summer when someone pointed out the very next verse, verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that just blew my mind that when Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, it says, that's what some of you were in past tense. And I realized this is not a new issue in our culture, but th these issues have been going on for thousands of years ago. And for thousands of years, God has been washing people and sanctifying them and helping them live a different life.
So that gave me hope for the first time that I can live a different life. And so my life started to change that summer because when I had this group of guys who came along beside me, and you know, the Bible says that God's word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and it is so true. It is a weapon. My life started to change when, when guys, instead of just using God's word as a weapon against me to feel good about their own self-righteousness, they started to use God's word as a weapon to fight for me, to come along beside and fight my sin with me. And so by the end of the summer, my life had completely changed. Uh, I had uh, walked away from the LGBT community. I'd walked away from sexual encounters. I was starting to kind of get a grip on my porn addiction for the first time. My life was completely changed. You know, I feel like the expectation from the church, from the body of Christ, uh, their goal for my life would have been for me to go from gay to straight. That's what the church wanted for me. But the transformation of my life that, some, that summer was something so much more remarkable. God didn't just take me from gay to straight. God took me from lost to saved. And that is so much more remarkable than any type of behavior change. He took me from lost to saved. He entered into my story and saved my soul. And that changed everything. But out of that, I walked away from the homosexual lifestyle in the LGBT community that summer. And I want to share with you guys a few things that God taught me that summer that helped me do that. The first is he gave me value. He showed me that my value comes from him. He showed me that my value comes from the fact that I'm his child. I don't have to sell myself or I don't have to earn the love of another person. I don't have to count on the emotional responses I get or another person being in a certain relationship with me for me to have value. My value does not come from people. My value comes from Christ because he made me and he loves me. The second is that he gave me power. Showed me that now that I'm saved, now that I, I know the Lord, I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And because of that, I can wake up every day and choose to deny myself, no matter what feelings, attractions, desires I have, I can choose to deny myself and live a life that's honoring to him. Because now I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And before, I did not have that. The third is he gave me an eternal perspective. Uh, let me explain that. We, we live in a culture that is so confused and a culture that says living by God's standards for sexuality and marriage is not only impractical, but our culture says it's inhumane to expect anyone to live by God's standards. And there's been moments in the last 12 years that are difficult. There's been the weeks and months that are difficult. But living with an eternal perspective Jesus always takes me, whenever I'm struggling, to this picture of, uh, of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he's crucified. And he's so tormented about what he's going to be going through on the cross that he's actually sweating drops of blood. And God reminds me that, that even though Jesus was going to be so tormented on the cross, not just because of the, the physical reality of, of the death on the cross, but the, the spiritual reality of taking on the sin of the world, he was so tormented by that but he still went and did it. And he did it for me. And he did it for my sin. And one of my favorite verses is John 19.30, where Jesus speaks his last three words on the cross. He speaks his simple words, it is finished. And in speaking those words, Jesus gave me everything I need for eternity, which is salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so in light of the fact that I have everything I need for eternity, it makes my struggles, my issues, and my desires here on earth so much less important because I have eternity with Christ and everything I need in him. That means that I can deny myself for the few short years 
that I'm on earth. The last thing he did was he gave me a new identity. He showed me that my identity is not in my struggles. My identity isn't in my feelings. It's not in the labels society gives me. My identity isn't even in sometimes the boxes that the church tried to put me in. But my identity is in him and only him. And that's such a big piece of sexuality is identity. I have people ask all the time, why is this sin treated so different than others? Why are we, as a society, being forced to celebrate it when we don't celebrate other sins? Which sometimes I uh, you know, sarcastically point out, we do celebrate gluttony at every church potluck. But, you know, uh, um, but why is this treated so differently? Uh, well, Part of it is because it's not just behavior, it's identity. It feels like to the core of this is who I am and this is who I have to be. And, and there, most sins are just not that way. Most sins evolve around you know, behavior, which certainly it's a, there's a heart behind that behavior. But this is so much about identity. But as I uh, was growing my relationship with Christ, I was wrestling with the fact that society says this is who you are. But Christ was coming along and giving me a whole new identity and saying, this is who I made you to be. And so as time went on, God started to chip away at that identity. And my, my identity in Christ started to outweigh my identity and my sexuality. And I realized that, that these feelings do not define me. They don't control me. And they are not who I am. And so God continued to mold me and illuminate areas of my heart and show me what my heart had twisted along the way to give me desires that, that uh, are unhealthy and not normal. Our world is adamant that people who are gay are born gay. And that's just the way that they are. And with every ounce of my being, I don't believe that. I have so much sympathy and compassion for people who believe that because I was there once too. But if that was true, then people like me couldn't change. But we do all the time. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people talk about having a life verse. Uh, unfortunately, I've come to believe that my life verse is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and wicked. And that's us. The, our, all of us, our hearts are deceitful and wicked, and they lie, it lies to us. And so uh, um, that's what our hearts do. It's like the, the worst advice you can ever give anyone is follow your heart. Because your heart is deceitful. So, no, we need to follow God's word. And the, the Bible does say that God wants to give us the desires of our heart. And that's true. But if we're following the Lord, our desires change to be in line with God's word. So God started to show me and illuminate my heart and what my heart had twisted and some of the factors maybe lying underneath same-sex attraction and the, the, the things that I'd struggle with. And it, it talks about homosexuality in Romans 1. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter because it's kind of spread throughout the chapter. But in Romans 1, it talks about homosexuality and it's this progression of they traded God's truth for a lie. And because of that, they started worshiping created things and images of God instead of the creator, which people are made in the image of God. So sometimes we worship people, the images of God instead of God himself. And through that worship of other people, they developed uh, desires and lust for one another, people of the same gender. And God gave them over to that and they, they had relationships with one another of the same gender. And, and that was revealed to be a sin. And God took me down this reverse course and I see him doing this in people's lives every day. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can change the way I live my life and I can quit acting on these desires. Then over the course of a lifetime, as he sanctifies us and purifies us, 
He starts to reveal some of the lies that we believed, some of the lies that we believed about ourselves, about God, about the world, that, that led us to worship people, that led us to find our value in other people. So God has shown me some of the idolatry behind my same-sex attraction, how I was trying to find my wholeness in other people instead of in Christ himself. And as I walk, I've, I've walked along hundreds of other guys and, and, and women too over the last 10 years who are struggling with same-sex attraction, who identify as gay, who are trying to leave that community, who are trying to wrestle with this, I see some of that same idolatry of looking to other people to find our wholeness instead of looking to Christ. But over the years, as God has shown me the, some of the idolatry behind same-sex desires and relationships and marriages, the, this idolatry of finding wholeness in another person, that very same idolatry at the heart of same-sex attraction, same-sex relationships, so many times is the same idolatry at the heart of heterosexual relationships and marriages, not only outside the church, but inside the church. And so if we're going to uh, be a light to the world. We as the church have to repent of how we've also twisted marriage and sexuality to find our wholeness in other people instead of in Christ. If we're going to be a light to the world, they have to see us having a bigger picture of marriage and relationships. Um, we see in the Old Testament, uh, back in Genesis, the story of, of Jacob and Rachel. Um, many of you guys know the story. I, I'm, I'm not going to read it. It's, it's kind of a long story, but Jacob's life is kind of a, a wreck. He has to flee the land he lived in, uh, family dispute, family dysfunction. He fleed, and he found this girl, Rachel. He was so enamored with her beauty that he just had to have her. And so as uh, Jacob is so just taken aback by, by Rachel, he's just so desperate to be with her. He's willing to sell himself seven years of servitude to be, to have Rachel. And then he was if you know the story, he was tricked into being with Rachel's older sister, Leah, instead of uh, Rachel. And he was so disappointed and distraught that he was willing to give another seven years of his life to, uh, uh, to be with Rachel. And so if you look at the big picture of that, Jacob did not have a biblical view of marriage of, I'm going to give my life to another to love them unconditionally because of what God can do with our lives together. He had this, he was from a broken place and he was looking for redemption. And he looked for redemption in a woman. He looked for redemption in a person. He looked to a person to find his wholeness, to redeem his life. And that is idolatry and it is rampant in our culture, not only outside the church, but inside the church of looking to a person to find our wholeness and uh, um, to, to, to deal with our dysfunction. But that is not the type of marriage that God calls us to. But we live in a society that's, we're just so filled with lust and desires and, and, and be with whoever you'll want, you want to be with. Um, as I've observed our culture the last, uh, my entire, really my entire life, I, I've seen that we have a culture of marriage and sexuality where we pursue people based on two things, uh, who you're the most sexually attracted to and who will make you happy, at least in the moment. And so when that's our, our um, basis for marriage, which is not biblical, then it's no wonder that the, the LGBT, LGBT community wants the right to get married because we've turned marriage into be with whoever will make you happy right now and whoever you're the most attracted to, even though so many of those attractions are based on idolatry and dysfunction and brokenness. 
And so when I go to churches, uh, they want to know, how do we respond to the homosexual community? And it's like, we respond to them by repenting of the same ways that we have twisted our very own sexuality to find our wholeness in another person instead of in Christ. Uh, God's continued to work my life last 12 years and continue to illuminate areas of my life. For many of these 12 years since I came to know him, I thought that I would never be married. I thought I'd just never be able to be in a relationship. And, uh, um, and a couple of years ago, God started to stir some things in my heart and that, that maybe that could be different and maybe I could have something to offer and maybe I, I could possibly be in... A, uh, a relationship into marriage. And it's kind of at the same time that uh, God stirred those things. Uh, Aaron Holbert, you guys know, our former youth pastor, he randomly messaged me. And he's like, hey, there's this really remarkable woman in our church. Would you go on a blind date with her? And so I was like, sure, why not? And as you can guess, it was Mary. Uh, so God was stirring some things in my heart. And uh, um, and now we know how that ended up. Now we're engaged. And as I've gone through this process the last two years of, of, of pursuing marriage and dating someone, I get all these interesting responses and questions from people. Uh, um, they say, oh, you're dating a woman, so you're attracted to women now. And my answer is, no, I don't want to be attracted to women because I don't want to trade lust for men for lust for women because that gets me nowhere in the kingdom of heaven. I want to be attracted to one woman, and that's my wife, and only my wife. And as uh, God has brought the two of us closer together, and I see deeper into her life and into her soul of who she is, God builds that attraction based on my knowledge of her and my trust of her. And when he does that, he makes her even more beautiful to me, not only on the inside, but on the outside. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the gospel and where we're called to build marriage on, of this mutual love of dying to one another. I love how Tim Keller defines the meaning of marriage. Um, and Mary and I have talked about this this um, and I Tim Keller talks about marriage as uh, being in this position where God allows you to help prepare a person to spend eternity with Christ. And what a high calling and what a humbling calling that is for marriage to walk along beside someone to prepare them to spend an eternity with Christ. That's something that we should take seriously, that God's called me to spend my lifetime with this woman, and my, my charge is to lead her in a way that uh, she's in a better place to give an account for her life when she stands before Christ. What a high calling that is so contrary to what the world tells us marriage is about. And what a high calling for her. You should pray for her because it's not going to be easy. Uh, and so, but what a high calling, what a better picture of marriage, of dying to ourselves to help another person be sanctified and accomplish the things that God has for them instead of what can it do for me, instead of what can I get out of it. I want to leave you guys with um, four challenges on how we can respond to our culture. How can we make disciples? Uh, we can talk about this in church, and that's so awesome when we talk about it in church, but what do we do when we get home and we have to interact with our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers who have a completely different view of us than this? How do we, uh, um, yeah, how do we, make disciples in our culture that is so blinded. 
um, by, uh, by, by myths, truths, and confusion. How do we minister to people in our own church? So I have four challenges for you in that. The first one is if we're going to make disciples in our culture, in our churches, we have to be safe people and create safe environments. And I get this from Ephesians 4.29 where it says, make sure that everything you say gives grace to those who hear. And so many times we have not, if we've talked about these issues at all within inside the church, it's not been in a way that has given grace to those who hear. And every church I speak at, there's people sitting in the audience who've sat in silence their entire life, struggling internally because it was not an environment where they could be real. I, I spoke to a guy one day at a church, and he was about my age, and he'd been going to that church for five years. He'd been in the same small group for five years, the men's group, and he hadn't told any of them about his struggle at all, about the same sex attraction. He wasn't acting on it, but it was been a struggle that had really just paralyzed him and led to so much shame and guilt like it does so many of us. And I said, why would you not tell your, your men's group that should be the first place you should be honest about these things? And he said, that one of the first weeks they got together, five years earlier, one of the guys made a comment about homosexuality and another guy made the comment, well, it's a good thing none of us struggle with that. And you know what? I have no doubt that those guys had no malicious intent. They had no malicious intent whatsoever about uh, making those comments, but they had no idea that someone in the room struggled with that, that someone in the room was wounded deeply by that. And so we have to make sure that we're speaking about these issues, uh, all painful, difficult issues, with the assumption that someone in this room hearing what I'm saying could be struggling with this. And is the way I'm talking about it giving them grace? Is it building bridges between me and them and therefore hopefully between them and Christ? Or is it putting up barriers? I recently heard someone say that, uh, that uh, gay and lesbian men and women who grow up in the church have such a much more difficult time understanding that Jesus can love them than uh, gay and lesbian women who grew up outside the church. That is such a travesty. And I see that over and over again of when I'm ministering to people is that it's a lot easier for people outside the church who have no church background to understand that Jesus loves them and what repentance can look like than people inside the church. And that is a travesty. And that would not happen if we lived out Ephesians 4.29 to make sure that Everything we said gave grace to those who hear. The second thing is this, have the right expectations. Uh, I, I feel like this is one issue where we expect people to do not know the Lord to live a biblical life. We expect people to change their behavior. We expect them to repent of their sin when they don't know Jesus and they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. We want them to completely clean up their life before they walk inside the doors of the church. That's not the way it works. That's not the way any of this works. It's, sanctification is a lifetime process. And people come to know Christ, and then God is still illuminating errors in their life. And people need Jesus, not just because they're gay or lesbian. They need Jesus for a hundred reasons in their life. They are so much more than just their sexuality. And they need Jesus for so much more than just that that we have to be prepared to come alongside them and walk alongside them for a lifetime because for most people, it's going to be a struggle for their lifetime. I remember when I came to Christ, I had great friends and community. I loved them dearly. But after kind of about six months, they started or they stopped 
talking about it, stopped asking me about it. They started to just have the expectation that, oh, well, I'm, I should be dating women now, and um, uh, I should be dating women, and that'd be a sign that I'm like healed. It's like, no, marriage is not a sign that we are healed because we don't find redemption in marriage. We find redemption in Christ and only in Christ. And so we have to write, have the right expectations that we're going to have to walk along people for a lifetime to bear their burdens with them. And sometimes we don't understand what we're expecting of people. When someone walks away from that, that life, they're not just quitting a side behavior in their life. Many times they're walking away from their loved one, their community, people, that, their community where they belong and where they're accepted from their whole, soul, whole support network. That's a huge burden to bear, and we're called to come along beside them and bear those burdens with them and give them a community where they are loved unconditionally and where they belong. We should be the family that they never had, not the gay community. We should love them better than any place in the world that they can go and experience love. And we had, so I just want to ask you the questions. Are your homes, are your small groups, are your, is our church a place where we're ready to walk along beside people for a lifetime? Because that's what it looks like to make disciples and live in light of eternity is that we prepare people to stand before God one day and we walk along beside them as a family and, and bear their burdens with them with the expectation that sanctification takes a lifetime. The third is this. Uh, I might have to unpack this uh, for a couple minutes. Um, I could do a whole sermon on this, but I'm not going to. You're welcome. Uh, um, the third is this. We have to judge rightly. Uh, so here's what I mean by that. I feel like right now our cultural verse, the verse that our culture clings to, that everyone says they agree with, is Matthew 7.1. It's where they just pick out the two words, judge not. We're a, a culture that's all about not judging. We don't judge. Because uh, judging is hateful, and so you don't judge anyone. But we have a God who judges. He just calls us to do it the right way. We have a God who looks at things and says, these things are good, these things are not good, these things are very good, these things are bad. We have a God who judges whether things are good or bad, and we reflect him in that. We just have to judge the right way. And as we go through scripture, when, uh, you know, it, when it talks about judging, then we, go, we look at Matthew 1, or excuse me, Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, and, and bigger context, um, it says, judge less the way you be judged. That we don't judge people in a harsher way that we're expecting it. And it's talking about judgment within the body of Christ. We don't judge the people out there. We judge the people in here to hold each other accountable to living the, best, the life that God has for us, a life that honors him. And that judgment comes with an attitude of humility and sorrow. And I feel like that's so many times where uh, we get judgment wrong, where judgment from us as the church comes from self-righteousness and pride but when we see a brother who's living in sin, who's struggling with issues in their life, who doesn't have it together, it should bring us to humility and sorrow as we walk along beside them. That's the type of judgment that God calls us to, walking along our brothers and sisters in Christ with humility and sorrow for the sin that they are enslaved to and helping them live to God's biblical standard and bearing their burdens along the way. 
The last thing I want to leave you with is this. The last challenge is enter the mess. People are messy. And sometimes we try to make a church culture which we're sanitized and clean and all the mess is out in the world. But I'm very positive that the biggest threat to my life and the biggest threat to your guys' lives is not the world out there. It's not the sin out there. It's the sin that's within. That's the biggest threat to our lives. It's the sin that's within. And we have to enter the mess of people's lives. We have to enter the mess that, because we're all sinners, we make messes. Our lives are messy. And so if we're going to make disciples, we don't have to be afraid of people. We don't have to be afraid of uh, culture. We can enter the messiness because that's what we have to do to make disciples. I was speaking at church one day, and afterwards, a lady came to me and said, I really should reach out to my lesbian neighbors, but that sin is just too yucky for me. And I had two responses for her. One was go home and look at yourself in the mirror and understand that Christ had to hang on the cross just as long for your sin as he did for your lesbian neighbors. And two, go to Acts 17, where Paul goes to Athens and he sees a city that's so full of idolatry and sin that he's physically sickened by it. But did Paul say, that's just too messy? That's just too yucky for me? No, he went there and he lived with them so he could understand their hearts and understand the idols that they were serving so that he could apply the gospel to their lives. Because Paul knew that his discomfort was worth it for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we do when we proclaim the truth of gospel in people's lives. We enter the messiness of their lives so we can understand their hearts, so we can listen to them. Uh, we make way more disciples by listening than we do preaching at them. We have to listen to them so we understand where their heart is at and the idols that they're serving so we can apply the truth and help them live an abundant life that has so much more than anything in the world has to offer. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you uh, just for your grace that it is so sufficient and it is abundant and it helps us live an abundant life that we could never imagine. I, I thank you that it's sufficient for every kind of sin, that, that you call us to live so much greater than the world calls us to live. I thank you uh, for this church. And Lord, I pray that we can be a people who lives abundant lives in light of eternity, that we can be a people who invest in our neighbors, invest in our coworkers, that we can love them and understand them and proclaim the truth of the gospel in their lives. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I thank you for listening. Um, I'll be outside afterwards. Just feel free to come and talk to me. I have a little table set up with some information about my ministry. You can sign up for my newsletters. You can grab a brochure. Uh, if you ever want to grab coffee, connect. I would love to connect with any of you. So thank you.